Aloha, and welcome to the Word of Hope with Ralph Moore, pastor of Hope Chapel Kaneohe. Hope Chapel exists to grow ordinary people into faithful, productive followers of Jesus Christ, equipping them through Bible teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. Today, Pastor Ralph brings a message entitled, A Helmet for Your Mind. We'll be in Ephesians chapter 6. And now, here's Pastor Ralph. I've been in Ephesians for the last, this is the 37th week that we've studied a book that's only six pages long. We're not done yet. In fact, we're a ways from being done, but I I think it's going to bless you. To me, this is the most natural thing for me to do as a Bible teacher, is just to take time and dig into the Word and and try to make sure that you're being fed. Back when I first became a pastor, uh, there was always this sort of slogan that people had in terms of picking a church, you got to go where you get fed. And to me, if you go to church and you don't get fed spiritually, you basically wasted your time. And so we're into trying to feed you and make sure that you've got something to chew on, something that is going to last in your heart and in your mind, and it's going to protect you, and it's going to be with you. It's going to strengthen you. Today we're talking about just a very short verse. The the title is called A Helmet for Your Mind. And I'd like for you to look at verse 17, and I'm going to skip reading verse 10 over like I've done every week, although I'll probably quote it. It says in verse 17, put on salvation as your helmet. As we get into this passage of scripture, it's telling us that we are fighting against spiritual beings that we cannot see, that the problems that go on in our life are not caused by people. You know, you think about it, most of the struggles that you are going through have a name attached to it, some person. The Bible says that person is being manipulated by a spiritual force that they can't see, that they don't understand, but that is very real and is in conflict with the God of the universe, and you happen to be on his side, and so you're caught up in this war. It's a rugged deal. It's, a, it's an unavoidable situation. And as you, as you look at it, we're not wrestling with people, but against spirit beings that we can't see or touch, but they're organized, and they're attacking us, and the scripture says to stand firm against them and to make sure that when the shooting's over, you'll still be standing. It tells us to arm ourselves against them. And then it gives us a little clue. And it says to prepare yourself so that you stand firm against the strategies and tricks of the devil. Most of what the enemy throws at us happens in our mind or in our heart. Not all. Because there are times that we let the armor down and we give a big open door and Satan comes in and something ruinous happens in our life. There's some physical damage that comes about. And we're supposed to arm ourselves against this and and to be walking in the spirit and protecting ourselves from these things. But probably 90 some percent of whatever Satan will do to mess with your life is going to come through the gateway of your mind. And so you're supposed to have a helmet and you're supposed to wear the thing. You know, I was at a friend's office the other day. A friend of mine is an attorney downtown and we'd gone to lunch and my wife was with me and they're in a really beautiful building and he wanted her to see the place and so we went in there and, and I get into his office and, and the walls are covered with sports memorabilia. And I'm not saying his name and I'm not saying the teams in case somebody figures out his name because he's going, as soon as they find out what team you're rooting for, all your friends bring you stuff. And uh, it's all over the place. And I noticed there were, there were three little football helmets. One was a clock radio. There were different things that were made out of little plastic football helmets. And you see the stuff everywhere. But, you know, there are some people now that will go out and buy an NFL helmet. 
the same kind of helmet exactly that the guys are wearing on Sunday and, and as they're out there doing battle in the, in the field. And, you know, a guy will get that and he'll polish it, he'll wax it with car wax, he'll put it on the shelf, he'll dust it, you know, he'll, he'll take care of it like whatever. But if you're in the NFL, you don't do that. You wear the thing. And in case you didn't understand, every week those helmets, all of them get repainted. Because every week they get so bashed and so beat up and the paint is all scraped off them. And, you know, there's grass stain caught in the leather and they, they, they refurbish the helmets every week. But the players care little about that. What they care about is wearing the thing to protect their head. You know, I want you to stop and think what it would be like to be a, a blocking back and you're in a situation and suddenly the play breaks up. A defensive end gets around the guy that's supposed to block him and he's coming straight at your quarterback. You put your body in the way between him and this person that's got the ball. And suddenly as he hits you, he knocks your helmet off. And as you're rolling around in the dirt, you suddenly become aware that the play is still going on. The quarterback is now out of the pocket. He's scrambling around in the backfield. There's this thundering herd of white elephants that are all wearing cleats, and they're, they're prancing around your head. What is the first thing that you want to do? Get that helmet on the, on the, back on the head because you want to protect your head. You want to protect your mind. And as we look in the scripture today, it's telling us to take up salvation and this is, the, this is the intriguing place, because you could just talk about protect your mind from Satan, but use salvation as a helmet. Put on the helmet of salvation. Now, to most of us, salvation is something that happened to me a long time ago. I was five years old when I accepted the Lord. And so it's very easy to kind of put that experience in the trophy case and sort of leave it there, something to polish, something to look at, something to talk about. I have this testimony of what God did in the, in the life of my family, my parents. You know, I can remember my dad accepted the Lord basically because I was a little kid and wanted to go to Sunday school and we went to a church that was corrupt and my dad just blew that off and, and it got him, got him going. And so when I accepted the Lord, it was really now my dad taking me with him. And I remember seeing in, in my family, first thing that I saw was my father, who was a couple packs a day smoker, just quit smoking that day. The night he accepted the Lord, he threw the cigarettes away and never smoked another one. And as I grew up, I began to realize that was something of a miracle. What I remember next was that my little sister got polio. And, and I, I remember my mom and dad and myself praying. We'd been going to this church and they taught us to pray for the sick. And we prayed for my little sister and, and God healed her. And, and, and yet there's enough damage that was left. Her leg had started to shrivel. And the one leg is still just a little bit smaller than the other. And, and it's like a reminder to our families. But, but see, it's very easy to put that in the trophy case of my life. And, and, and yet here it says to do something different. Put salvation on his helmet. I'd like for you to write in the margin of your Bible near where it says the word helmet, Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 32, and then turn there with me. We're going to spend the rest of the morning in the book of Romans. The Apostle Paul wrote Romans, as he also wrote Ephesians. Ephesians is a letter to the church at Ephesus. Romans is a long letter to the church in Rome. Paul had never visited Rome when he wrote this, and so he kind of wrote the entire basics of Christianity out in the book of Romans. If you had to throw away all of your Bible but one book, you would want to hang on to Romans the most because it's the most complete appraisal of what we have in the Lord of anything that we have in the scripture. But in Romans chapter 1 verse 18, it talks about salvation to come. And this is about heaven, about the world that's out there waiting for us. It says, what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory God will give us later. Now if you could get into the Greek language and really understand that you get the picture that oh, over here 
our, our sufferings, the struggles, the stuff we go through. Over here in a balanced scale, you know, like the scales of justice. Over here is the, is the glory, the weight of the glory of God that's going to be revealed to us in heaven. And the scale, as soon as you put both items on the scale, the scale goes like this. Because the sufferings and the sorrow don't match the glory and the goodness in any way at all. They're lightweight compared to the weight of God's glory that's going to come into our life. And so he's starting to give us hope. In verse 19 it says, For all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, everything on earth was subjected to God's curse. When you read the book of Genesis and you see the story there of, of mankind turning their back on God, the immediate response is that the planet comes under a curse, that we, we gain our food by the sweat of our brow, that we give birth to children with great pain, that there's a, a constant struggle and a tension between a man and a woman in a love relationship. They love each other, but there's still there's, there's this angst. There's something more. And all of this is part of, of a bent and broken creation, bent and broken because of sin and rebellion toward God. Verse 21 all creation anticipates the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. You know, if you read 1 Corinthians 15, you might want to write that there in your margin to go look at 1 Corinthians 15. The Apostle Paul in that chapter spends a lot of time talking about that we're going to have a new body, a glorified body, when we come into our own in eternity. You know, my mother-in-law is, is deaf and she's mute. She cannot speak. She cannot hear. And in the last 10 or 12 years, she's gone blind. And so the only way to communicate with her is by sign language or by Braille. And I've never, ever held a conversation with my mother-in-law. My wife does, and it's always a difficult thing. The, the isolation that she goes through is, is just traumatic. But one day, on the other side, I'm going to meet my mother-in-law, and I'm going to be able to speak with her. And I'm going to be able to hear the things that she has to say. Because the Bible says that we're going to come into a new body. There's going to be no death. There's going to be no decay. That we'll become a new creation as we get there. Well, it goes on and says, verse 22, says, We know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to this present time. I like that illustration. The pains of childbirth. How many of you women know what we're talking about here? <laughs> but that's not really what it's talking about. It's not talking about you giving birth. It's talking about us being born, the pains of childbirth. It's talking about us being in the birth canal and us being in the process of anticipating and waiting for new life. Let's just talk about that for a second or two. You know, did anybody remember this? Has anybody got a good enough memory that you can tell us what it was like when you were being born? I, I'm certain those of you that have given birth understand it, but from the other side of it, we don't remember it too well. But, you know, here, here you are, and, and, and for all of your existence, you've been in Water World. And it's this warm, cozy, nice little place, and everything is just kind of, there, there, there's not a lot of, of sensory input. Maybe there's some sound, but, and, and maybe there's somebody touching you once in a while, but that's about all that you get. And, but it's comfortable in there. And then all of a sudden, one day, there's an earthquake, and, and uh, you just cannot comprehend what in the world is going on to you. And, 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 and then things begin to change and squirm. you start squirming around a little bit. Suddenly, all of a sudden, you're in a position where everything just tightens up on you. And your little pointy head gets even more pointy than it was before. And you're just sitting there going... 
And then it all lets go and you go, oh, I'm glad that's over. <laughs> and it's not long before it, there's another earthquake and then it goes, and this time it feels like your right arm is going to just get shoved right into your lungs, you know, and you just, you, how do you, and, and, and this thing is just, and, and, it's, and it's just insufferable. And you want it to get over. You want to go back to life the way it was, peace and quiet. And you have no idea, you have no way of comprehending even the fact, and this is corny, but I got to say it, that there is light at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> there is a world out there that in no way at all relates to the world that you have known for your entire existence. There's stuff out there that you, that's absolutely unpredictable to you. I mean, you think you got it bad right now. It's going to get good, and it's going to get good in ways you couldn't anticipate, you couldn't imagine, you couldn't dream of. You're in the birth canal, and you cannot comprehend a sunset. You're in the birth canal, and you cannot comprehend what it means to have the Red Sox win the World Series if you're a Boston fan. <laughs> You're in the birth canal and you have no concept of what it would be like to hold your own child in your arms and have that baby look like you. You have no idea of what the world is about. All you know is it's painful and you'd like to get out of here. And the Apostle Paul uses that as an illustration to describe the stuff that we go through in this world. And you can understand pretty quickly why the concept of salvation in terms of where the Lord is taking me in the future becomes a helmet for my mind. Because when the devil comes along and wants to nail you with despair, with depression, with thoughts of worthlessness, with temptation, that you know that there's a light at the end of the tunnel. There's a better world waiting me. And that all of this really doesn't count that much toward what's going to happen to me in the future. And I can put this on and it becomes a protection for my mind against the assault of the wicked one. Am I making headway here? Let's go a little further. Go down to verse 24. It says, now that we are saved, we look eagerly look forward to this freedom. It's like we've entered the birth canal. We're not in the womb anymore. We're looking forward to the freedom that's going to be there. Or if you already have something, you don't need to look for it. You know, we look at this world, sometimes we think it's all there is, but there's a lot more going there. We are hoping for it. Verse 25, we look forward to something we don't have yet. We must wait patiently and confidently. And where it says confidently, I just wrote a little equal sign and then I wrote helmet of salvation. My confidence in what God has in store for me in heaven. See, we don't talk about heaven much around this church. Church is very young. You don't, pastors don't talk about heaven too much. Church gets real gray-haired. Pastors talk about heaven all the time. So we, we don't have much of a theology of heaven under our belt. And, and, but it's there and it's real. And it's the, it's the whole thing. I mean, you stop and think about the gospel. The only reason I'm a Christian today is because I believe that Jesus died and rose from the dead and is sitting at the right hand of the Father in heaven now. If I didn't believe that, I couldn't believe any of the rest of it. And when you isolate that one incident, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and you go study it, you'll find there is no answer that makes any sense at all other than what the eyewitnesses said. He died, they buried him, he came back to life, and it blew us away. It's the only answer that works. 
You know, there are, there are, are probably a hundred people over the course of human history that have set out to disprove the resurrection of Jesus Christ and not only became a Christian in the process, there are thousands who did that, millions perhaps. But there's at least a hundred that ended up writing a book in support of why they believe in the resurrection because they set out to disprove the resurrection. But if you believe about the resurrection, you have to engage heaven because it's all about a life with God that goes on without end. This life is, if anything, an interruption in eternity. We're being made for the life to come. And so wear it as a helmet. The next part here is salvation in the here and now. It says the Holy Spirit helps us in our distress. Now, when you think about the Holy Spirit, I, I just want to talk about this for a minute, and I, I don't know how to do this without it getting complicated, so I'm just going to skim over it. it. It just, we need to understand that we're wrong when we talk about the Holy Spirit and then we use the word it to describe the Spirit of the Lord. You know, grammar and, 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 and language translation from Greek, which was written in, into English, there are some things that get lost in the mix. And, and unfortunately, there are little rules in Greek grammar that we, as we translate, tend to flip over and we nullify things in the process of translation. And one is to make the Holy Spirit sort of neuter gender. He's not a person. He's an it. Not male, not female, and it. Think about this, that God is referred to always in masculine terms. And this is not some sexist rhetoric. It's just the way that God defined himself to us. The, Jesus is the son of God, masculine terms. But both of those terms are personal. There's a person there, not an entity. But we come along and we talk about the Holy Spirit, and if you read the old King James Shakespearean English, it, it talks about the Holy Ghost, and five centuries ago, the word ghost didn't mean what it means to us now. Today, the word ghost means a dead person who's sort of floating around out there. In times past, the word ghost meant a spirit that was a, an eternal being. But you read the word Holy Ghost and you get a complete confusion going on in your mind. But as soon as we talk about the Holy Spirit and then we say it does this and it does that, and then we're thinking about a, some sort of a foggy machine. And God is talking about His Spirit. The person of God, the Spirit of God. And we need to refer to the Holy Spirit as He. Another thing that we need to see is almost always. You, you would be right 99.5% of the time, and you're wrong about 70% of the time doing it the other way. If every time in the Scripture you see the word spirit or spiritual, if it's not referring to a demon or something or an evil spirit, then you would put the word holy in front of it and it would signal to you, this is talking about the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. And so that the concept of something spiritual wouldn't be some neutral thing out there. It would be the presence of the Lord is what it's talking about here. And it says that the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, helps us in our distress. Now, the scripture tells us in Corinthians that the Spirit of God comes to live inside of my spirit and that my body becomes a tent or a tabernacle, a temple of God. That God, by His Spirit, lives inside of me. Now it says that the Spirit of God living inside of you will help you pray and help you get through times of distress, time in the birth canal when you don't quite know what to do. It says the Holy Spirit helps us in our distress for we don't even know what we should pray nor how we should pray. But the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. We don't know how to pray. We don't know what to pray for. But the Holy Spirit prays for us 
with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. You can go over into 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and, and there's some parallel passage in the Greek language. And the English language, they kind of mangled it in this translation. 1 Corinthians 14 talks about praying in, in the known language and praying in the language of the Spirit. And it's got to be what Paul's talking about here. That we come to the Lord and, and, and the Holy Spirit prays in us. The Spirit of God living in us prays to God for us. The New Testament talks a whole bunch, and we don't talk enough about it at all, about the baptism of the Holy Spirit and power that comes with that and, and a, a, a language, God giving you a, a spiritual language to praise him in. Not that God wags your tongue and takes control of you. You know, I've seen people pray for the baptism of the Holy Spirit and they start going, but that God puts sounds in your mind that are foreign to you. By faith, you speak them to him. There are hundreds of people in this church that have got a story of, I was sitting off by myself praying one day, and God began to just put these sounds in my mind. I spoke them. And, and, and all of a sudden, I found a release in my life that I didn't know before. God praying through us, and, and the Spirit praying for us about things that we don't completely understand. Well, it goes on to say this about it. It says in verse 27 that the Father who knows all hearts knows what the Spirit is saying. For the Spirit pleads for us believers in harmony with God's own will. God who knows hearts knows what the Spirit is saying is the Spirit prays according to the will of God. The Spirit is going to only ask things of God that God wants to do in your life. And as a result of that, here, stop and look at my, my situation. I have a crisis in my life. I don't know what to do. I'm freaking out. I start praying. I begin to just kind of come to the end of my wits. I begin to pray in the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is praying things that I don't even understand. God is hearing. God wants to answer those prayers. And that brings us up to this verse that we quote so often. And it says, And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and who are called according to his purpose for them. And we know that God causes all things, everything, to work together for the good of those who love him. And they're called according to his purpose. God has a plan. God has a purpose for this universe. And somewhere in it, you and I fit. You know, I think there's a, a problem. We, we get into a relationship with God and we think everything centers on me. The wisdom of Rick Warren is the first line of that book. What's it say? Not about you. It's not about you. God has a plan. God has a purpose. And somewhere there's a place for me to fit in that plan. There's a calling on my life. And I need to discern that. And I need to, once I discern it, walk in it. And suddenly life has meaning because life has purpose. Because there's a direction to it. There's a sense of this is what God is trying to do in my life. And as I yield to that, and the Spirit of the Lord inside of me is coaching me and moving me and praying through me, and God's going to take everything that happens in my life, including the garbage that Satan dumps my way, and he's going to turn it and twist it and tweak it and make it into something that works for my benefit, something that's good for me. Does this make sense? There's a story in the Old Testament of Joseph and his brothers. And God spoke to Joseph when he was a young man in, in dreams, two different dreams. And in both dreams, he was basically told that he was going to become the rescuer of his family, the savior of his family, if, if you would. But that his family would honor him for it. And, and he told the dream to his parents and he told the dream to his brothers. And it's probably a mistake sometimes to share those most precious things that God tells you. Because they mocked him. And they begin to hate him for it. And his brothers, one day far away from home, captured him, were thinking of killing him. They were so jealous. 
Instead, they sold him as a slave. And he ends up living in Egypt. And, 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 and things go from bad to worse in Egypt. First, he's a slave. He's doing well as a slave. His master's wife tries to seduce him. He won't be seduced. She cries rape. Now he's in prison. He spends more than a decade in prison. And then some people come down to the prison and they have these dreams and he interprets the dreams. And he says, when you get out of jail here, go remind Pharaoh that I was unjustly accused. And, and they forget about him. And he's left in prison longer to rot. And one day the king has some dreams and he goes to all his magicians and soothsayers and they have no answers for him. And Joseph is able to tell the king what he dreamed and to tell him the meaning of the dreams. And in one day, Joseph goes from being in a dungeon to being the number two person in Egypt. He's running the country. The economy. Years later, his brothers come because there's a drought and there's a famine in their land. They want food and they come looking for help. And, and Joseph, it, it's, you should read the story. It's really interesting. I'm going to fast forward. He, he, he takes care of them. Eventually, he shows them who he is. They're terrified. They think now he's going to kill us. He's got power. We did him dirt. He's going to kill us. And he turns around and he says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. You've been listening to The Word of Hope with Ralph Moore, pastor of Hope Chapel, Kaneohe. 